regular leaders, they understand their time is up and they're going to spot their legacy. But people like Trump and Putin and all of them, it's like an existential threat to have to leave power. And they're also afraid of prosecution because they're criminals. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, who's written a book called Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present which is an account of the behavior of a range of mostly right-wing leaders in countries around the world in the last hundred years. She shows how these leaders developed the authoritarian playbook, using corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power with awful consequences to their countries. Ruth saw, well before he was elected, how Trump was casting himself in this role and how dangerous he could be here. We had a very good conversation about how Ruth came to study fascism in Italy and beyond. If you want to understand Trump in international and historical context, listen to her here and read her book. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiad at New York University. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Ruth, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Ruth Ben-Ghiat. I'm professor of history and Italian studies at NYU. I'm a NSNBC opinion columnist, and I do a lot of public speaking on threats to democracy, and I publish a Substack newsletter called Lucid on that subject. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you went down this road of studying Italian history. And I grew up in an area of California, uh, Pacific Palisades, which is right by Malibu. So the last place on earth you think would prepare me to to study fascism, but it was a place where a lot of famous exiles from Nazism had had come, like Thomas Mann, the writer, and Arnold Schoenberg, composer. So I grew up with the stories of these people and some of their uh, relatives and children and offspring. And so I always wondered about what it was like to live in such a place where you had to flee, although I had no family connection to any regime or persecution. And so when I went to uh, graduate school, I decided to study fascism, and I chose Italy because... It lasted twice as long as Nazism, and it was not as well studied. So I thought it might be more interesting 
to study, there might be more opportunity to discover things. Had you learned Italian at that time? Or it seems like a necessary part of that. I had, it's interesting, I had studied French and I could speak French pretty well, but I had not studied any Italian. In fact, I had tried to take Italian at UCLA where I went for undergrad and I had to drop out because I just couldn't learn this language. And so when I arrived in Rome to do my graduate studies, all excited to start my studies, I had to speak French because I didn't know any Italian. So I'm, I'm self-taught. And so it's very interesting that many, many years later, I became the uh, department chair of the Italian studies at New York University, being a self-taught person in Italian. But I lived there for many years. And so I was able to not only learn the language, but understand the mentality, because for the kind of work I was doing, you know, thinking about what drove people to collaborate with fascism, you really need to know the culture from the inside. I remember as a teenager having a certain fascination with the Nazis coming to power and reading some accounts of Hitler. And you can't uh, be Jewish without having some connection to that giant atrocity. And I also read a biography of Mussolini 10 years ago. There's something fascinating, I think, about these figures that imposed their will on the world like that, even when it's horrific. What I've read of your work is the recent book, Strongmen. When does that interest in strongmen start for you exactly? Yeah, that's a good question. Because my my first my first uh, two books were academic books, although you know written about subjects that interest a lot of people, and on Italian fascism. And I was studying like the system. The first book called Fascist Modernities was about how the regime got all these intellectuals and artists, filmmakers to collaborate with the idea that, you know, we hear Mussolini made the trains run on time, that Italy was going to be modern and respected and have prestige. So I wasn't very focused on Mussolini. And then my second book on Italian uh, fascist um, imperial film about film propaganda, that also wasn't focused on him, but I was inching uh, closer because I was looking a lot at masculinity and how the leader figure was so important in propaganda. So that was the state of things when Trump came on the scene. And as a first-generation American and somebody who studied fascism, I instantly saw the threat that he posed and that one person could uh, do so much damage and he was doing all the things. I started writing about Trump in 2015 for CNN. And I just saw everything very clearly. I was able to predict a lot of what he did. I published a, an op-ed for CNN right before Trump took office saying, Trump is following the authoritarian playbook. <laughs> and so that's when I thought, you know, I need to do a book that is not only about leaders, it's about their collaborators too, and about the tools they use. And the crux of Strongman is about this authoritarian playbook of, of corruption and violence and machismo and propaganda. It's about them as a narrative, these leaders and, and how much damage they can do, because 
I thought people would say in America, it can't happen. And Trump's just a clown or Trump's just a joke. And that's what everybody said about Mussolini too. That was the impetus for me to write this book. I was reading it over the last little while with my father and his wife around. And I kept uh, telling them how difficult to read it was in certain ways for me, because there's so much uh, torture and rape and the exploitation of the population. And it's, it's really, it's really quite nauseating to, to come to terms with. Can you just describe for people who haven't read the book, some of these figures and what part of the playbook they demonstrate? The idea of the book was to look at 100 years of authoritarianism. And because I'm a historian of fascism, I, I looked at right-wing authoritarians. And some people have criticized the book because they don't see Stalin in there or Xi Jinping or the left-wingers. And um, But that's not because I don't think that the left created less violence than the right. In fact, to communism created more victims. But I wanted to show how there's fascism, and then when it ends, there's right-wing military dictatorships on up to Bolsonaro, who praises in Brazil the, the military dictatorship, and up to Putin, who comes out of a communist system but is now a far-right nationalist, and up to Trump, who surrounded himself with people like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, who actually have decades of experience with helping right-wing strongmen from Ferdinand Marcos to Mobutu. Uh, so he surrounded himself with people who really knew what they were doing. And so the criteria for my who I included was, was that, this kind of right-wing trajectory, but also leaders who exert what I call a personalist rule. That's a political science category. And these are personalities who end up wrapping the whole system around themselves so that their parties become agents of their own will. So you have Trump even managed to do this without wrecking a democracy where the Republican Party in 2020 said, we don't have any platform besides supporting Trump. And it became his personal tool. Those were some of the concepts that I was using. It's the first book to put Trump in historical perspective and show that he really was using these same tools of propaganda. And, and propaganda isn't just uh, feeding people false facts. It's actually training them to make certain associations and see the world in a certain way. And Trump's a superb propagandist, and he was able to do that. When Trump was first elected, and I was worried all fall he was going to be and, and not totally surprised that he was, when he was first elected, I was really trying to figure out how much to worry about it. I was very worried about it, but I, but I wasn't clear about how much he truly wanted to go down a road like these other strong men you have mentioned. I remember talking to a professor of political science at Harvard, who kind of said dismissively to me, like, people think he's he's like a Hitler. He's not. He's doing Republican things if you really look at what he's, you know, like the legislation that's passing and so on. And I think 
there's a natural skepticism, even if people have these other models, if someone who is a wannabe authoritarian hasn't moved that far down the road yet where they're executing people or, or whatever, that they really have that intent. It's hard to be sure, right? It's hard to be sure that they will be allowed to, and it's hard to be sure that that's what they actually desire. You said starting in 2015, you're pretty clear about this. What makes you so clear that we had to worry to the extent that we're comparing him to the Mussolini's of the world? Well, first of all, so I never called Trump a fascist. And a lot of people didn't like that. They didn't understand why I didn't do that, me of all people. And there's a reason for that, which is related to what you just said, is that, so the purpose of my book was to show how authoritarianism changes, that the outcomes are going to be different in different times and places. And so if our standard is be looking at what Mussolini did or, or Hitler or other people who had a one-party state and, and committed uh, you know, genocide, although Putin's doing that today, that's going to mislead us because many times today, and this was the, the point of the latter half of the book, that authoritarians come to power through elections and it's a gradual shift, and they don't get rid of other parties necessarily. They don't get rid of elections. They fix the system. They game the system. So look, what if we take Putin, who is getting toward, I think, a one-party state, but he games the system by putting serious contenders like Alexei Navalny in jail, but he keeps other parties going. We have to be careful because it's not in our interest to think, oh, if, if we don't see a, a law that bans all other opposition parties and sends everybody to jail like we had under fascism, then it's nothing to worry about. We're going to be missing the point and we're going to be taken by surprise because just like in Viktor Orban's Hungary or even Russia, Putin's been there for 22 years. He didn't do this overnight. He did this gradually. So that's why, although Trump does many fascist things, it's very tempting to call him a fascist. It's not necessarily the whole picture today. We can't use that as a metric. When you're thinking about the Berlusconi's and the Bolsonaro's and the Gaddafi's and all these people that you went through, is there one of them or two of them that you felt was most like Trump, that Trump either was copying the most or just had a similar personality to and, and acted like them the most? Yeah, for sure. Silvio Berlusconi of Italy. And some people were like, why is he in your book? Uh, and in fact, uh, there is no Italian translation. It was rejected by like 30 publishers. So I think wow. like the fact, well, San Berlusconi controls a lot of publishers. Yeah. Um, but he's extremely important. He was the first person to uh, bring fascists back to, into the government since 1945. And the way he ruled in a democracy is very similar to the things that Trump did from, you know, locking up migrants to having this kind of uh, big tent approach where he had, you know, uh, priests and like religious figures and gangsters and housewives and the charisma and the personality cult and the use of threat 
all of that he did. And also being the mouthpiece of Putin, he was very tied to Putin. He was the person charged with uh, sustaining Putin's goals in the diplomatic sphere. He advocated for Putin with NATO and he did that job for many years. And then Trump took over and Trump was a much bigger prize for Putin. But Berlusconi was, he came in for the first time briefly in 1994. And that's when he brought the fascists into government. No one had ever done that. And then he came back for the first decade of the 2000s. And he really prepared the way for this new brand of authoritarians who don't perhaps wreck democracy altogether but exert an enormous damaging effect. One of the things that struck me and I think was new to me was how much there were partnerships and learnings from one authoritarian to another. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the one chapter I didn't have room for was called Partners. And so what I did is I I, I took the the items and I put them in all the different chapters where they applied. And that was very interesting. And so, in fact, there is one left-wing, extreme left-wing strongman in there, and that's uh, Gaddafi of Libya. He was uh, anti-imperialist. And he's there to show these borrowings because Libya was occupied by Italy. And so he had this, his life and his culture was wrecked by the fascist. And so he, but he learned all these things about repression from the fascists, and then he becomes just as repressive. And he's also a very faithful partner of Berlusconi. So he's influenced by the old right, and he's partnered with the new right, but he's a man of the left. And, and we know that ultimately, these authoritarians are transactional. So Trump is a right-wing you know, person, but he's above all a person who just wants power. So he was asking Putin and he was also asking China for help getting elected. So that's one theme of the book is that these are men who have no moral code. They, in fact, they see any kind of humanitarianism or morality as a weakness and they are totally opportunistic and transactional. So whoever can help them, they will partner with. And that's why you have these weird things where um, Mobutu, who was the head of the Congo, is a very interesting figure. He's He was a Cold War right-wing ruler. He was propped up by the U.S. and by various you know, Europeans. But he's very influenced by you know, Mao in China, and he's very close to Ceausescu, the communist ruler. And they're like really good friends. So you have these friendships and partnerships that span boundaries because ultimately all of these guys – are interested in power in the same way. They're just in it for themselves, by and large. They're in it for themselves and for money and for deals. And the thing with authoritarians is that they're, you have a deal with them until you don't. They're, they're impulsive, they're unpredictable because they have no principles. And that's why I saw that immediately in Trump and I thought, oh, this is, this is really bad. <laughs> this is going to be very bad. <laughs> How much do you think Trump himself has sort of studied the authoritarian playbook and is intentionally following it versus that's his personality and some of the people who've surrounded him have knowledge of it, like some of the people you've mentioned? How much do you think this is what he's after? 
Yeah, that's a question I get a lot because Trump doesn't read. Although I believe his wife, Ivana, who said that uh, when they were married, he had two books in the bedroom. He had his own Art of the Deal, of course, and he had a, a volume of Hitler's speeches. And I, I think that's probably I've, true. I've read that too. It just seems... It might not be true, but uh, the Art of the Deal, I'm sure he had in his bedroom. But, but whether he's read it or not is an entirely different thing. He doesn't read, but it's an instinct thing. And he surrounds himself. He has a certain personality type that they all have. And this was very... Uh, dismaying to me when I was doing the research, realizing, uh, and I didn't expect to find this, that Trump has exactly the same personality as all these guys do. And they each have their own quirks. Like Hitler was very obsessive and focused on, you know, Jews and Slavs and others. They all have some traits that are unique to them, but they're all, uh, I, I described some of these characteristics before, you know, amoral, opportunistic. And so I saw him very clearly and that's why I've been able to predict uh, all the things that he's done and the way that people will respond to him, that the GOP, uh, I think in August 2016, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic. So he wasn't even in office for going to be there for a long time. And I said that the GOP would become like his personal tool and they might get ruined because it's not just what they do, it's the way that people respond to them. So a lot of the book is about their collaborators. So many of our other presidents have so much struggled to get their parties in line. I mean, the current one does, has trouble with it. It's it's kind of routine for a president that, that that whole thing about the power to persuade is crucial to wielding power in this country. How does Trump, who's so unschooled, become so successful? in persuading his party to follow. Because from the very start, he treated them, he, he didn't really try and persuade them. He just imposed his will. And he was very clear with threats. And he had a very different approach than any other president. Because Trump is unlike any other president, Republican or Democrat. He had no interest actually in being president. And the presidency was just a means to an end for him to make money and have a certain kind of power. And that's a very strong statement, but that's how I feel. And so he treated the GOP from the very start uh, with threats and intimidation and waited for them to buckle. Uh, and that's what they did. I've watched them buckle. I No one can dispute it, but I'm still surprised that that they did that in that way. Are you surprised by that? No, not at all. That's why I was able to predict it. What he did is that he demonstrated early on that he was going to partner with them. He was going to have command over them, but he was going to give them goodies. So for example, it was very important that he had Pence there. The reason Pence was there is for the evangelical and the Christian. And that's been very key. In fact, you can say, well, wait, isn't Trump the last person on earth who Christians would partner with? He's completely unpious and you know, sexual abuser and assaulter and a criminal. But he made it clear at himself as well as through Pence that he was going to back them. And he did this with all kinds of constituencies. And so uh, there were very good reasons that the, that the politicians who depend on these constituencies backed him. 
And everybody saw early on, and somebody like Mitch McConnell, who also has no values, recognized uh, a common mentality and realized that Trump would work with anyone, anyone at all, even Putin. He would do things that no one had done before. And so with him, they could achieve far more power than they ever had before. I assume that given the date of this, that you wrote this before the 2020 election and before the January 6th insurrection and all that, how would you update your view of Trump or comment at least on what happened and his reaction with the big lie and all of his difficulty leaving power and all the lying about it? There is a paperback edition that's updated to include January 6th, but I did have to turn it in in the summer of 2020. And I have I, the hardback. Yeah. Yeah. So the paperback, uh, it came out, uh, uh, when did it come out? Um, after January 6th. And, um, but I had predicted that he wouldn't leave office quietly. And I say that at the end because they can't. Because regular leaders, they understand their time is up and they're going to spot their legacy. But people like Trump, and Putin and all of them, it's like an existential threat to have to leave power. And they're also afraid of prosecution because they're criminals. Trump was under investigation when he came into office, just like Berlusconi, just like Putin. And they use government as a way of keeping themselves out of jail. And so <laughs> leaving government presents a huge problem. So what Trump did with the big lie was real genius by the way, built on the 30,000 other lies that he told. He had already prepped people with a truly successful, um, astonishing successful campaign over four years. So he had all these people prepped mentally. And the big lie allowed his followers, because he has a huge personality cult. It's, it's really remarkable. They didn't have to reckon psychologically with him having lost they were able to keep thinking he was their hero. All the Christians were able to say, no, he still is the will of God. He's there. He's our savior. And so all these myths that, by the way, Mussolini started, they're all the same myths for a hundred years. He used the big lie to avoid people saying, okay, that's it. He's done. He's gone. Move on. So he kept people in like suspended animation. Now, and the Republicans went along with it because they realized that he would go to lengths that no one had gone to before and allow them to steal elections. And they were already doing this through gerrymandering, voter suppression. And so somebody like Trump comes along and they break taboos and they legitimize lawlessness. And he'd already done that for four years. And so this was a, an extension of that, but it was a big acceleration. And so January 6th came along. And I really see it as uh, a leader cult rescue operation. And all the leaks that have come out of all the text messages, you have Senator Mike Lee and all these representatives, everybody working frenetically for the leader. We've got to work for the leader and do what he wants. And all of this is, is leader cult stuff. That's how I see it. I see it as a coup attempt. And technically, it's a self-coup where a leader doesn't want to leave, so he tries to stay in office in an illegal manner. Do you understand the Trump supporters, the Mussolini supporters, the people that do come to believe in this 
in this big figure and think that he is the savior or however they view him? Do you understand them? I've studied enough that I do understand what they see in them. I don't personally, for me, these, these men are criminals and they're abusers. And that's why I put so much unpleasant stuff about torture and all the details of what they did, because they cover up what they did. Or they get people to think that their tortures and, and stealing and lying is justified. Or people just, there's an interesting studies that show that people, uh, sometimes they get duped, they believe the lies, but other times they know the person's probably lying, but they just love them so much they don't care. So I see the appeal, but I, my specialty is to get, get in there and show the public how it works, kind of pull back the curtain and say, this is what's going on. And not to demean the people who vote for these guys or believe in them, but to just show how they were duped so it doesn't happen again. I mean, one of the things that's got to be frustrating as a person writing op-eds and talking on MSNBC and CNN and writing books and trying to be heard. One of the things that's got to be frustrating is that you can't reach a lot of the population. They, they are immunized against hearing what you have to say. You become like a Cassandra, right? Like you're cursed to like make prophecies that people don't believe or that some subset of the population doesn't believe. How do you feel in this role that you have it's a shame that people like me are not asked more commonly to be on the legacy networks because we're on MSNBC and I'm on MSNBC a lot and CNN less, uh, but preaching to places. the converted. Yes. Yeah. Where we need to be. You is, need to be on Fox. On Fox. And I was asked to be on Tucker Carlson's show some years ago, but I, I was busy. Um, so I didn't go on. Now he doesn't have people like me, and it's dangerous to go on now, his show. I mean, you get death threats anyway and stuff like that. You need to be on the legacy networks like ABC, CBS, because a lot of independent voters, centrist people, watch those. Everybody was watching the CBS Evening News, right? And they they don't ask people like me as often, Um and that's a shame, but I do try and write for like Business Insider or The Economist or places where it, it's not just people who are very liberal reading you. Do you feel like you're able to have impact? In some ways, yes. Um, I think there are things that you do behind the scenes where you advise people or governments or groups corporations. And so a lot of it is not seen, but I, I think so. There's the problem of not reaching enough of the people who most need to hear you. I think uh, I get enough emails and messages from people who talk to their families after having seen me. So there's probably more impact than one knows. We are... Uh coming up on a midterm that likely the Republican Party will dominate. We know very likely Trump will run again and has, given the state of things, has a decent shot of winning coming back. I really can't take it, but I, it, it's certainly possible. If he happens to win again, and David Frum has that comment about 
now that velociraptors will know how to work the doorknobs. What do you think we can expect from a second term Trump? I think that if you remember when he first came in, he did what I call a shock event with the Muslim, uh, so-called Muslim travel ban. And you know that that one piece of legislation, which was engineered to produce chaos, it was Bannon and Stephen Miller. And Bannon is a chaos agent, and he purposefully, they wanted to implement it without telling TSA and port authorities to create chaos. And it was supposed to be one of 200 executive orders to be unleashed in the first 100 days of rule, a blitzkrieg, because that's Bannon's philosophy. I'm mentioning this because if Trump comes back, uh, because the logic of authoritarianism is that there's always an escalation and acceleration. And when you have somebody who was booted out and then comes back, it happened with Orban, happened with Berlusconi, things will happen faster, depending on how he comes back and what the circumstances are. But things will come happen faster and you will have uh, a kind of revenge animating him. That They're very clear about that. Newt Gingrich and all kinds of GOP lawmakers are clear about exacting revenge and not just on lawmakers and their lists. You know, I was put on, I'm on this professor watch list. I don't care. That's run by uh, Turning Point USA, the far right organization. And it's designed to encourage people to try and get a quote, radical leftist, which I'm not, but I've been labeled as one to get them fired or just make it difficult for them to want to speak out, uh, hassle them. So there are lots of things like that. And those you can expect that those things would increase if, if Trump comes back. In 2017, he starts out, we get the Women's March. There's an enormous flowering of sort of entrepreneurship on the left, of resistance organization. There's a lot of kind of heroic work in Congress, even within people that he's appointed that are trying to restrain him and can't believe some of the things he's trying, you know, his chiefs of staff, et cetera. If you were advising people who in this event that he comes back have to resist this accelerated, more trained version, what needs to be done to raise the game of the resistance if we have to contend with this again? Well, ideally, we would have been prepared before this all happened. Ideally, we will stop him, uh, you know, and... Ideally, we'll stop him. But I think the White House right now, which has a million things to worry about, has to make the threat to democracy at home the central story and be very clear about mass shootings, how they're linked to democracy, be very clear about the radicalization of individual lawmakers, call people out to reach the the people in the center who are not understanding the the threat. And then we also need, and it's very difficult in the United States because it's so big, we need a broad-based democracy movement. And it's just hard. There are many, many organizations working toward this, but it's hard to have a coordination and a coordination of messaging. And the reason the Republicans have been so effective is they've instituted, this is what Trump did. He instituted an authoritarian style messaging discipline. And you've seen what happens to people 
who go against the messaging, everything from Mike Pence, who actually wouldn't, you know, he did the wrong action, to Ted Cruz, who made the mistake of saying that January 6th was a terrorist action, and then Tucker Carlson hauled him up and on TV and, and humiliated him. Because Tucker Carlson is a, a dangerous fascist demagogue, and he's the role of the authoritarian enforcer. I look at all these people with the eyes of a regime, and that's what he is. He's a propagandist, but he's an enforcer. And so Democrats, by their nature, are not going to have an authoritarian discipline of messaging. That's a good thing, but that makes it harder to hammer home certain points. And so they, these are structural challenges that I don't have a full answer for how to get around them. When I've talked to campaigners, I've talked to many, they will sometimes say, well, the polling doesn't work to, to campaign against the threat against democracy. People don't understand it. We have to campaign on kitchen table economic issues or whatever the other thing that they're proposing. So it's a kind of a big collective action problem where Different people have different views about what will work or different evidence they think about what will work. Yeah, it is. It is. And there can be power in that uh, multiplicity of approaches. But one easier thing to do would have the Democratic elite and down to the state and community level establish certain priorities and just go after those. I've seen that you've had some comment on Governor DeSantis who seems to be mimicking Trump's gestures and playing some kind of Trumpian cards in his state and clearly angling for the presidency. How do you view him in that kind of roster of a regime? He's extremely dangerous because he has absorbed all of Trump's lessons but he seems to be more mainstream. He doesn't have all that baggage. I mean, nobody is, is as criminal as Trump. Trump is criminal in so many ways. It's shocking. All the sexual crimes and mafia associations, it's like not just one mafia, but- Just not paying his contractors and suing everybody. And he's just- All, all uh, of it. Yeah, Workplace. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing that this an individual like that was president. So DeSantis- no one could have that degree of crime. So he looks better. He looks more mainstream, but he's extremely dangerous. He's doing very authoritarian things. He's, he's using his governorship very clearly to rehearse the kind of authoritarianism. He's ha using overreach and getting into things that governors never did before, like state Supreme Court appointments and redistricting. And then one of the scariest things he's done is this election police because this, quote, election integrity is the Republican catchword for how do we defraud the American people. It's what I call the upside down world of authoritarianism. The vocabulary, it, it masks its opposite. So election integrity is the code word for how to rob elections of their legitimacy. So DeSantis established this office of election uh, security which has its own prosecutors and its own investigators and a tip line. So you're turning citizens against each other. That's part of it. So he is showing himself to be very aggressive and then going after Disney. And that's something autocrats do. You act out of ideology rather than business. Trump had that thing where he 
tried to push a big $10 billion contract from Amazon to Microsoft, for example. And now uh, Abbott is doing, you know, things as well and trying to pressure social media companies. This is the Abbott and DeSantis are the two who are trying to make their states into what David Pepper calls laboratories of autocracy. And, and that's another thing people can think, oh, well, we have a democratic administration, so there's no threat of, you know, losing our democracy. But the threat is at the state level. And somebody like DeSantis is clearly rehearsing uh, and then his his very far right uh, press secretary, who's like an attack dog who used to work for the Koch brothers, she says, make America Florida. So they're going to go national with this. Um, and she's she's really scary. She uh, congratulated, you know, Orban on his victory. And they're all obsessed with Orban. And that's another whole thing. So I've got my eye on DeSantis very closely. And I've already written a number of pieces and I will continue to write about him. One more positive or uplifting part of your book is talking about resistance in some areas where people have made the right moves. I, I noted, for example, the the mayor in Istanbul that you talked about. What do you think is the right kind of campaign, the right kind of party message to use and what kind of work can ordinary citizens do to resist this kind of move that countries are making? Well, we just did it in our country. We had mass nonviolent protest and we had my newsletter, Lucid. Um, I just published a piece about 2017 and 2020, where we uh, first had the Women's March, which was the largest such protest in American history until Black Lives Matter protests uh, surpassed it. And the reason it was important is that the Women's March directly influenced the 2018 midterms because there was a kind of wave of candidates who were energized, women and people of color, who came out of that and a record number of new types of politicians came into office as a result of that. So that's one example. The second being the Black Lives Matter protests, which involved, it's really interesting, involved over 20 million Americans, and they were multi-generational and multiracial. And they directly influenced voter turnout, and that's how we got rid of Trump. So nonviolent protest, I write in the book, is one of the main ways you can, especially if you still have a democracy, there's no excuse for people not to be out there. It's not like Belarus where you're imprisoned or, or Russia. So many, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, I think it's thousands now, actually, I think it's 15,000 I read, have been imprisoned in Russia for protesting against the war. And there's a, a long history of uh, protesters in Russia being persecuted. So that's one way. The other is like what we can still do is voter registration, voter mobilizations, becoming very hard to vote. And we need to compensate with that by registering record numbers of people. Have you looked at other wannabe authoritarians who haven't made it? If Trump's story is, I came in, I got four years, I got I lost the election, and then for some reason he can't come back because he's convicted or he dies or whatever. Are there examples that we can look to where 
country. I mean, like France just in a certain sense fended somebody off. But what's out there among people who got came to power and were turned away from that path? Yeah, there's so France is interesting because uh, people voted. They didn't like Macron necessarily, but they voted for him to avoid Le Pen. And we defeated Trump in Italy in 2019 because they have other countries. It's easier because they have coalition governments. They have many parties and those parties can band together against the autocrat. It doesn't always work. It didn't work in Hungary, but when it does work, it's effective. So there's a very dangerous kind of neo Mussolini around in Italy, Matteo Salvini of the League Party. He's got all the makings of a strongman. In 2019, to prevent him from coming to power, all the other parties banded together, even though they didn't like each other. <laughs> and it worked. So that's happened before. But we are particularly vulnerable because we only have two parties. It's one of the only places in the world that's just these two parties. So if one of the two exits democracy, there's no flexibility. We have to think of a different scheme. And that's why voting, just getting almost 80 million people didn't vote. If we could get 40 million of those people or 20 million of those people to vote, that could actually, it could compensate for some of the stolen votes that were, you know, manipulated elections that we're going to have. What if you're a Republican anti-Trumper and you want to exorcise this disease from your party? Are there moves that might be made that would be successful? Most people think that you can't save the Republican Party right now, and we don't have a third party. So those people have to hold their nose and vote Democrat for the moment and wait. I think the Republican Party is on this path. This is unfortunately what I said in 2016, that once you get on this path uh, of extremism, you end up imploding or you end up in power, but they're not going to reform from within. What's very noticeable and very authoritarian, they're not only going after external enemies. Look, look at Pence. He was supposed to be hung. Or Liz Cheney. Anybody who speaks out becomes a, a real threat. They're not savable right now. Elise Stefanik, who was considered a moderate and smart, if you, do, if you join with that movement, you get elevated quickly. Yeah, that's the corruption. I would like people to see this as the workings of corruption. I think we need to be naming these things. That's why I have corruption. I added the corruption chapter to my book. And corruption isn't just financial corruption. It's exactly the kind of thing you just said. It's rewarding lawlessness. And that's what's going on now. I'm curious whether you find yourself optimistic or pessimistic about our future in this country. I am an optimist by nature, because otherwise it's too hard to uh, write about this awful stuff I write about. I take heart from uh, all the uh, that history of people who have managed to topple their despots. But right now we're not in a very good place. I think that if we get it together, um, maybe not by the midterms, but by 2024, we have a very good chance of taking back our democracy and safeguarding it. I just wrote a piece for my newsletter, Lucid, on hope, the importance of keeping hope, because if you lose hope, that's exactly what people like Trump want you to do. They want you to be resigned and silent and frightened 
and hopeless. And then they've won. So you have to you have to keep hope, you have to keep resolve, and you have to keep going. Is there a question that you haven't been asked that you would like to be asked? I don't think so. Well, it's it's been really an honor to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. That was Ruth Ben Giat. She's at ruthbengiat.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.